I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 30th, 2013. Coming up, we're going to hear about the bee's needs, the first year of a citizen science project to better understand our native wild pollinators. We're also going to hear from former U.S. astronaut Buzz Aldrin about his vision for America's future in space. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Like many of us, scientists have wondered for years why certain species are monogamous rather than polygamous. In the latest chapter of Such Intrigue, two new studies using similar research techniques have come up with different answers. Both research teams explain that processes that drive many male mammals to adopt social monogamy as a breeding strategy. Social monogamy is when males and females pair exclusively, living and breathing together, and raising their offspring as a unit. Because male mammals are much more likely to produce offspring in a single breeding season than our females, who gestate for long periods, it would seem that mating with one female per cycle would be limiting. Yet, a percentage of mammalian males are monogamous indeed. Research of, researchers have debated why, and they've been trying to identify selective advantages social monogamy offers. In one study, published yesterday in Science, only 9% of mammal species examined were classified as monogamous. A team of zoologists from the University of Cambridge argued that monogamy evolved as a practical solution for males because females live far apart from one another. But in another paper, also published yesterday in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, argues that males evolved to become monogamous to protect their offspring from rival males. According to this theory... Rival males might view the kids as a roadblock to mating with females. This team was led by a biological anthropologist at University College in London. Since neither research team could travel back in time, they studied the living relationships of thousands of mammals alive today, and they applied mathematical modeling to infer the most likely sequence of events that led to them. For better or worse, neither study sheds light on when and under which circumstances monogamy evolved in humans. A new study suggests that the return of wolves to Yellowstone National Park is bringing back a key food for grizzly bears that has been missing for nearly 100 years. It's wild berries that help bears put on fat before going into hibernation. Scientists from Oregon State University and Washington State University published the findings this week in the Journal of Animal Ecology. Their findings indicate that Yellowstone grizzlies are eating more berries now that wolves chase and eat elk. Wolves' constant hazing of elk herds keeps the elk from overgrazing on several plants, including berry-producing shrubs. This is important for bears because in late summer, bears can get more than half their calories from wild berries, if the bears can find enough berries. When people exterminated Yellowstone wolves early in the 1900s, elk could browse more easily without being chased by predators, and over the decades they overgrazed on favorite foods that include aspen, willow, and berry-producing shrubs. Wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone in the 1990s, and since then those trees' berry-producing shrubs have been slowly recovering. Thus, bears are eating more berries. The scientists point out that the recovering bushes also provide habitat for nesting birds and their spring flowers are good for pollinators. 
Back in the 1930s, scientists used voltmeters to show that tumor tissue has different electrical properties than normal tissue. In the early 1970s, Clarence Cohn, a biophysicist at NASA's Langley Research Center in Virginia, determined that the differing electrical properties were due to a difference in cell polarization, or how much more negatively charged the inside of a cell is compared with its outside. Tumor cells are less polarized than normal cells, and Dr. Cohn suggested that electric polarization might somehow be a regulator of cancer and other cell growth. In new research, biologist Michael Levin at Tufts University and his doctoral student Brooke Charnette have found persuasive evidence that Cohn was right. In their experiment, they injected into tadpoles the messenger RNA that encodes human genes that can transform normal cells into tumor cells. They put the tadpoles in fluorescent dye that was voltage-sensitive, fluorescing more brightly when the cell polarization was greater. As they monitored the tadpoles, whenever they found one with a dark patch of low fluorescence, indicating lowered cell polarization, they found that such patches of lowered polarization nearly always developed into tumors. They confirmed that link between cell polarization and cancer. A follow-up experiment that included treatments that increased the polarization showed that fewer, tumor, fewer tumors developed than in an untreated comparison group. To pave the way for clinical trials of this treatment, Levin and Chernet will now have to show that the same results can be found in mammals. The article appeared in Physics World magazine. The July 2013 edition is a special issue devoted to the physics of cancer. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. 44 years ago this month, Lunar Module pilot Buzz Aldrin guided the spidery craft to a moon's surface. Neil Armstrong and Aldrin descended the craft's ladder and left the first dusty human footprints on an alien world. Dr. Aldrin remains deeply involved in the U.S. space program. He recently spoke to me about his early experiences as a fighter pilot in Europe, Von Braun's legacy, and the current national space scene. Let's join him as he discusses his personal unified vision for space and the need for an independent advisory group called the United Strategic Space Enterprise. But that's why I'm organizing a space policy group to look at the things from the beginning, Sputnik on up through Apollo into shuttle, and from shuttle to station, and now looking at the moon, asteroids, Mars, what should we be doing? Uh, well, I've decided to call it United, because it's America's, and we unite those same five things I mentioned, exploration, science, development, commercial, and security. That's what the United States space program should do. The second word is strategic. So we don't just design something for the United States without knowing what other nations are doing. So we have to compare 
and meld together, cooperate or counter uh, what other nations are doing in the way of space policy. Is Russia threatening us? Is China threatening us? Should we be cooperating with Russia? Should we be cooperating with China? Uh, that, that's the second word, United Strategic Space. Now, I've always liked the word enterprise because that means you're doing something. You're doing something with information, information that you've discovered by a very elite crew of experts, respected because of their contributions in life to the evolution of the space program. So they probably don't have too many conflicts of interest and too many partisan ideas. So that makes them fairly honest judges. Who do they report to? Well, they don't advise the Defense Department. They don't advise the National Reconnaissance Office. They don't, revise, they don't advise the tourism business. They don't advise NASA. They inform the American people through periodic reports. And those are written in languages and visuals so that they're understood pretty well by the American people, and certainly they're understood by the congressional staffers because it's the American people who elect the staffer's boss. So the staffer better understand what he's telling the congressman to do. And the same with... Uh, the science advisor to the executive branch, he better pay attention to these reports because uh, it's the people who elect his boss, the president. There are two things that are on my wish list. One of them is unified space vision. That's me, my experience, my interpretation of what the future should be. And then there's United Strategic Space Enterprise, which you, if you abbreviate it somewhat, it becomes USS Enterprise, the Star Trek starship that boldly goes where no one's been before. Sent our NASA astronauts back to the moon, they probably would be preceded by Chinese. So we wouldn't be leaders anymore at the moon. And while we're spending all that money and finding it difficult to close down a government program, the Russians probably don't want to show the world just how far behind they really are behind the Americans 
they've always wanted to go to Mars. So while the Chinese are beating us at the moon, the Russians would be beating us to Mars. But the Obama administration, when it came in to power, saw that a moon program failed. And so why should it try and do that again? So it announced in Florida, we're not going to go back to the moon. But it was too bold to say we're going to land on Mars. It said in the future we will be able to orbit Mars and eventually land on Mars. But he said, uh, let's send a human visit to an asteroid. Um, eh, 2025, that's pretty good time. Now, unfortunately, in my plan, I had human visits, flybys of comets and visits to asteroids, as part of the buildup of the capability of the spacecraft to be able to get to Mars. You don't just launch off and go to Mars without testing the spacecraft at the moon where it can control robots doing a lot of things at the moon. It can help to build a base on the moon. It can recover the ice and turn it into fuel without building a lander, but by cooperating with the other nations and helping them build a base. Now, if you've got about five nations going to the moon and one of them has decided we, uh, we don't need to really do that and compete with the four others, isn't it logical that that nation be the accepted leader that brings together the other four nations. If the U.S. was going back to the moon, along with China, Japan, India, East, why would they want to follow the U.S.? Why wouldn't they want to do it on their own? But if the U.S. is not competing with them, We're helping them. Then it becomes an item of cooperation of foreign policy. And we preserve our resources to do the things at the moon that only really help us with the capability to get to Mars. That was Dr. Buzz Aldrin talking about his vision for America's space future. You can learn more by visiting buzzaldrin.com and by reading his just-published book, Mission to Mars, My Vision for Space Exploration. We'll post more of the discussion on howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. 
There are about 900 species of indigenous wild bees in Colorado. Compared to the domesticated European honeybee, relatively little is known about them. Wild bees are, nevertheless, critical pollinators for our native plants and may also be suffering from deadly pesticides and other stressors. To learn more, CU Boulder has started a pilot citizen science project called Bees Needs. Our Jim Pullen is one of the study participants. Last week, he checked out a bee nesting block at KGNU right here with Alex Rose, who runs the CU program. And he's a bee expert and Virginia Scott, who designed the experiment. So it's the bees' needs. I'm Alexandra Rose. The bees have needs that we need to meet in a, in a better way than we're doing currently. I think that's sort of the, that was the genesis of the name. Hi, I'm Virginia Scott, and I'm the collection manager over at University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. We have lots of bees here in Colorado, and out of the 946 species we know about, about 150 of those will nest solitary, um, just each female make, builds her own nest in cavities in wood and the bees needs um, provides homes for them and we're teamed up with citizen scientists who monitor nesting blocks on their property and then we're able to gather all those data and look at patterns of where the bees are nesting and where the bees are not nesting. So we have in the field um, 250 bee blocks this year, and those 250 blocks are monitored sometimes by individuals, but sometimes by families. Insects are always looking for places to make their nests, and when they do nest, they leave behind a signature that allows us to identify them who was there, um, to their genus, not necessarily to their species. And that signature is the nest plug. We have... You're not disturbing my bees, are you? No, I'm not. Because you're like <laughs> manhandling the bee block. I'm, I'm just tilting it um, so I can get a better look. There's a couple of plugs here that are made from um, just hunks of solid leaf. The bee goes out, they're leaf-cutting bees. They go out and they cut circles or ovals out of your leaves and if you look on lilacs or maples, ash trees, um, roses, yeah, you'll often see these circles and you'll wonder what's been doing that. Well, it's the leaf cutting bees and what they do with that is they bring those leaf pieces home one at a time and they line the nest cavity and produce like a little cell, a little room for their, for their babies and then when their nest is complete, they shove more leaf pieces in there and um, make a nest plug that hopefully will keep out any parasites or predators. To me it looks like, um, you know, some tragedy has happened in this bee block. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's this one block where you can see sort of a, a, a sh the outer circumference of the hole has mud in it, but then there's some bright green chewed vegetation that is uh, taking up most of the entrance now. Yeah, and um, one of two things has happened here. The, the mud, um, I would have to, I would be curious to know if that was, the, if the mud plug was made early in the spring or midsummer. Because if it was early in the spring, um, then it's Osmia lignaria, and that should not hatch again this year. 
if it was made later in the summer, it could be a humanid wasp, in which case they can have multiple generations per year. So it could be a tragedy where somebody could have taken over the nest, but it could also be that they've already reproduced, in which case, congratulations. <laughs> I love this nest plug. This is um, made from grass, and this is actually a Isodontia wasp. They're called grass carrying wasps. And they provision their nests instead of using pollen as food for their offspring like bees do. The wasps use um, arthropod prey, and in this case, they use tree crickets. So they plug their nest up with grass, they use tree crickets for food. They're, the wasps are solitary, but they're about an inch long and they can either be red or black depending on the species around here. And I just love this nest because the, the plug has a, what about two inches of grass flowers sticking out of the, the end of the block. It is so cool looking, really it's so beautiful. artistic. Yeah, it's very beautiful. But I see a beetle, or no, it's a bee, it's a honeybee. Is it alive or dead? Uh, no, this is a little boy megachylid. Um, this is a leaf cutting bee um, and probably got caught out in the rain. Since he's a boy bee, he doesn't really have a nest to go home to. Um, since he's a boy, I don't worry handling him because he won't sting. Um, but you can feel him. Um, he's, he's trying to warm up by pumping his wings. I think what I'll do is go put him under some shelter, maybe up along the brick, and then when it stops raining, he can go off and I think I'll put it over here because yeah. it'll be close to the flowers and it's still dry. So over here on the windowsill, it's dry and it'll, um, oh. You have to worry about spiders? Um, yeah, spiders will eat bees, but, um, Spiders got to eat too. Just don't feed him to one. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to put it on this little flower that's under the protection of the eaves. Nice. That's so sweet. How <laughs> neat it is. And it's a native bee too, know, which is really spot. exciting. That's an excellent. Let's find him another one. <laughs> the idea is, is that um, you know there's power in numbers. So the more people that we can get collecting data for us as scientists, the more power we have uh, to find patterns that would be impossible for us to detect as individuals or even as a lab of people. Can you talk about the problems that wild bees are facing? Are they similar to the problems that European honeybees are facing? Um, yeah, I think in a lot of ways they are. Um, I'll just very quickly give you a little bee biology. Um, adult bees drink nectar, so they need to go to flowers that have nectar to, you know, for their own um, nourishment. Honeybees will use that nectar to make honey, which they use as food for the adult bees during the entire year. But all bees feed their offspring pollen so in order to reproduce, they go out and they collect pollen. And that's why bees are out there collecting pollen. They're not out there to pollinate the world, although that's what they do. Um, they're actually out there to gather pollen to 
provide food for their offspring. So for a bee to successfully reproduce, it needs both pollen for the offspring and nectar for the adult. Now with honeybees, honeybees, because they're social, they, and they're so heavily managed, they are susceptible to diseases that other bees aren't necessarily. Um, honeybees have some mite problems. Um, some of our native bees also have mites, and they're different mites. Bumblebees have mites, and some of the leaf cutting bees have mites. But those are different mites than the honeybees. What about pesticides on the wildflowers? What about in people's <clears throat> yards? Um, bees are extraordinarily sensitive to pesticides and insecticides. And um, if you read any label, it will tell you not to spray it on flowering plants when bees are present during daylight hours so like with the mosquito fogging that's going on um, they're supposed to be doing that at night so that um, it doesn't affect bees um, but bees are extremely sensitive to pesticides and pesticide drift is a problem and also um, systemic pesticides that the plant absorbs and then um, takes throughout the plant. I mean, it's a good way to kill off aphids because the aphids that feed on the plant juices um, pick up the pesticide from the plant juices. But there's some indication that some of the newer pesticides, um, the pesticide, the killing agent, is actually getting into the pollen and nectar. Thanks to Jim Pullen for that report. Learn more with us on How on Earth as the Bees Needs Project continues. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I'm our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Pat Matheny. Additional headline help from Joel Parker and Shelley Schlender. Can't listen to How on Earth on a regular basis? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.